The Hellbound Heart by Clive Barker Chapter 1 Read by Daniel Montalvo So intent was Frank upon solving the puzzle of Le Marchand's box that he didn't hear the great bell begin to ring. The device had been constructed by a master craftsman, and the riddle was this, that though he'd been told the box contained wonders, there simply seemed to be no way into it, no clue on any of its six black lacquered faces as to the whereabouts of the pressure points that would disengage one piece of this three-dimensional jigsaw from another. Frank had seen similar puzzles, mostly in Hong Kong, products of the Chinese taste for making metaphysics of hard wood. The Frenchman had brought a perverse logic that was entirely his own. If there was a system to the puzzle, Frank had failed to find it. Only after several hours of trial and error did a chance juxtaposition of thumbs, middle, and last fingers bear fruit, an almost imperceptible click, and then victory. A segment of the box slid out from beneath its neighbors. There were two revelations. The first, that the interior surfaces were brilliantly polished. Frank's reflection distorted, fragmented, skated across the lacquer. The second, that Le Marchand, who had been in his time a maker of singing birds, had constructed the box so that opening it tripped a musical mechanism, which began to tinkle a short rondo of sublime banality. Encouraged by his success, Frank proceeded to work the box feverishly, quickly finding fresh alignments, fluted slot, and oiled peg, which in their turn revealed further intricacies, and with each solution, each new half-twist or pull, a further melodic element was brought into play. The tune counterpointed and developed until the initial caprice was almost lost in ornamentation. At some point in his labors, the bell had begun to ring, a steady, somber tolling. He had not heard, at least not consciously. But when the box was almost finished, the mirrored innards of the box unknotted, he became aware that his stomach churned so violently at the sound of the bell it might have been ringing half a lifetime. He looked up from his work. For a few moments, he supposed the noise to be coming from somewhere in the street outside, but he rapidly dismissed that notion. It had been almost midnight before he'd begun to work at the birdmaker's box. Several hours had gone by, hours he would not have remembered passing but for the evidence of his watch since then. There was no church in the city, however desperate for adherence, that would ring a summoning bell at such an hour. No, the sound was coming from somewhere much more distant. Through the very door, as yet visible, that Le Marchand's miraculous box had been constructed to open. Everything that Kircher, who had sold him the box, had promised of it was true. He was on the threshold of a new world, a province infinitely far from the room in which he sat. Infinitely far, yet now, suddenly near. The thought had made his breath quick. He had anticipated this moment so keenly, planned with every wit he possessed this rending of the veil. In moments they would be here, the ones Kircher had called the Cenobites theologians of the order of the gash, summoned from their experiments in the higher reaches of pleasure to bring their ageless heads into a world of rain and failure. He had worked ceaselessly in the preceding week to prepare the room for them. The bare boards had been meticulously scrubbed and strewn with petals, 
Upon the west wall, he had set up a kind of altar to them, decorated with the kind of placatory offerings. Kersher had assured him would nurture their good offices. Bones, bonbons, needles, a jug of his urine, the product of seven days' collection, stood on the left of the altar, should they require a spontaneous gesture of self-defilement. On the right, a plate of dove's heads, which Kersher had also advised him to have on hand. He had left no part of the invocation ritual unobserved. No cardinal eager for the fisherman's shoes could have been more diligent. But now, as the sound of the bell became louder, drowning out the music box, he was afraid. Too late, he murmured to himself, hoping to quell his rising fear. Le Marchand's device was undone. The final trick had been turned. There was no time for prevarication or regret. Besides, hadn't he risked both life and sanity to make this unveiling possible? The doorway was even now opening to pleasures no more than a handful of humans had ever known existed, much less tasted. Pleasures which would redefine the parameters of sensation, which would release him from the dull round of desire, seduction, and disappointment that had dogged him from late adolescence. He would be transformed by that knowledge, would he not? No man could experience the profundity of such feeling and remained unchanged. The bare bulb in the middle of the room dimmed and brightened, brightened and dimmed again. It had taken on the rhythm of the bell, burning its hottest on each chime. In the throes between the chimes, the darkness in the room became utter. It was as if the world he had occupied for 29 years had ceased to exist. Then the bell would sound again, and the bulb burned so strongly it might have never faltered. And for a few precious seconds, he was standing in a familiar place, with a door that led out and down into the street, and a window through which, had he but the will or strength to tear the blinds back, he might glimpse a rumor of morning. With each peal of the bulb's light was becoming more revelatory. By it, he saw the east wall was flayed, saw the brick momentarily lose solidity and blow away, saw in that same instant a place beyond the room from which the bell's din was issuing, Vast blackbirds caught in perpetual temptness? That was all the sense he could make of the province from which, even now, the Hierophants were coming. That it was in confusion and full of brittle broken things that rose and fell and filled the dark air with their fright. And then the wall was solid again. The bell fell silent. The bulb flickered out. This time it went without a hope of rekindling. He stood in the darkness and said nothing. Even if he could remember the words of welcome he'd prepared, his tongue would not have spoken them. It was playing dead in his mouth. And then, light. It came from them, from the quartet of Cenobites who now, with the wall sealed behind them, occupied the room. A fitful phosphorescence like the glow of deep sea fishes, blue, cold, charmless. It struck Frank that he had never once wondered what they would look like. His imagination, though fertile when it came to trickery and theft, was impoverished in other regards. The skill to picture these immensities was beyond him, so he had not even tried. Why then was he so distressed to set eyes upon them? Was it the scars that covered every inch of their bodies? The flesh cosmetically punctured and sliced and infibulated, then dusted down with ash? Was it the smell of vanilla they brought with them, the sweetness of which did little to disguise the stench beneath? Or was it that as the light grew, 
and he scanned them more closely, he saw nothing of joy or even humanity in their maimed faces, only desperation and an appetite that made his bowels ache to be voided. What city is this? One of the four inquired. Frank had difficulty guessing the speaker's gender with any certainty. Its clothes, some of which were sewn to and through its skin, hid its private parts. There was nothing in the dregs of its voice or its willingfully disfigured features that offered the least clue. When it spoke, the hooks that transfixed the flaps of its eyes were wed. By an intricate system of chains passed through flesh and bone alike to similar hooks through the lower lip, were teased by the motion, exposing the glistening meat beneath. I asked you a question, it said. Frank made no reply. The name of his city was the last thing on his mind. Do you understand? The figure beside the first speaker demanded. Its voice, unlike that of its companion, was light and breathy, the voice of an excited girl. Every inch of its head had been tattooed with an intricate grid, and at every intersection of horizontal and vertical axes was a jeweled pin driven through to the bone. Its tongue was similarly decorated. Do you even know who we are? It asked. Yes, Frank said at last. I know. Of course he knew. He and Kersher had spent long nights talking of hints gleaned from the diaries of Bolingbroke and Gilles de Reyes. All that mankind knew of the Order of the Gash, he knew. And yet, he'd expected something different. Expected some sign of the numberless splendors they had access to. He had thought they would come with women, at least. Oiled women, milked women, women shaven and muscled for the act of love, their lips perfumed, their thighs trembling to spread, their buttocks weighty, the way he liked them. He had expected size and languid bodies spread on the floor underfoot like a living carpet, had expected virgin whores whose every crevice was his for the asking and whose skills would press him upward, upward to undreamt of ecstasies. The world would be forgotten in their arms. He would be exalted by his lust instead of despised for it. But no, no woman, no size, only these sexless things with their corrugated flesh. Now the third spoke. Its features were so heavily scarified, the wounds nurtured until they ballooned, that its eyes were invisible and its words corrupted by the disfigurement of its mouth. What do you want? It asked him. He perused this questioner more confidently than he had the other two. His fear was draining away with every second that passed. Memories of the terrifying place beyond the wall were already receding. He was left with these decrepit decadence, their stench, their queer deformity, their self-evident frailty. The only thing he had to fear was nausea. Kersher told me there'd be five of you, Frank said. The engineer shall arrive, should the moment merit, came the reply. Now again, we ask you, what do you want? Why should he not answer them straight? Pleasure, he replied. Kersher said you know about pleasure. Oh, we do, said the first of them. Everything you ever wanted. Yes? Of course, of course. It stared at him with its all-too-naked eyes. What have you dreamed? It said. 
The question put so baldly confounded him. How could he hope to articulate the nature of the phantasms his libido had created? He was still searching for words when one of them said, This world, it disappoints you? Pretty much, he replied. You're not the first to tire of its trivialities, came the response. There have been others, not many, the gritted face put in. True, a handful at best, but a few have dared to use Lermarchand's configuration. Men like myself, hungry for new possibilities, who've heard that we have skills unknown in your region. I'd expected, Frank began. We know what you've expected, the Cenobite replied. We understand to its breadth and depth the nature of your frenzy. It's utterly familiar to us. Frank grunted. So, he said, you know what I've dreamt about. You can supply the pleasure. The thing's face broke open, its lips curling back, a baboon's smile. Not as you understand it, came the reply. Frank made to interrupt, but the creature raised a silencing hand. There are conditions of the nerve endings, it said. The light of which your imagination, however fevered, could not hope to invoke. Yes. Oh yes, oh most certainly. Your treasured depravity is child's play beside the experiences we offer. Will you partake of them? said the second Cenobite. Frank looked at the scars and the hooks. Again, his tongue was deficient. Will you? Outside, somewhere near, the world would soon be waking. He had watched it wake from the window of this very room day after day, stirring itself into another round of fruitless pursuits. He'd known, known that there was nothing left out there to excite him. No heat, only sweat. No passion, only sudden lust and just as sudden indifference. He had turned his back on such dissatisfaction. If in doing so he had to interpret the signs these creatures brought him, then that was the price of ambition. He was ready to pay it. Show me, he said. There's no going back. You understand that? Show me. They needed no further invitation to raise the curtain. He heard the door creak as it was opened. He turned to see that the world beyond the threshold had disappeared, to be replaced with the same panic-filled darkness from which the members of the Order had stepped. He looked back towards the Cenobites, seeking some explanation for this, but they disappeared. Their passing had not gone unrecorded, however. They'd taken the flowers with them, leaving only bare boards, and on the wall the offerings he had assembled were blackening, as if in the heat of some fierce but invisible flame. He smelled the bitterness of their consumption. It prickled his nostrils so acutely he was certain they would bleed. But the smell of burning was only the beginning. No sooner had he registered it than half a dozen other scents filled his head. Perfumes he had scarcely noticed until now were suddenly overpoweringly strong. The lingering scent of filched blossoms, the smell of the paint on the ceiling, and the sap of the wood beneath his feet all filled his head. He could even smell the darkness outside the door, and in it, the odor of a hundred thousand birds. 
He put his hand to his mouth and nose to stop the onslaught from overcoming him, but the stench of perspiration on his fingers made him giddy. He might have been driven to nausea had there not been fresh sensations flooding his system from each nerve ending and taste bud. It seemed he could suddenly feel the collision of dust mites with his skin. Every drawn breath chafed his lips, every blink his eyes. Bile burned in the back of his throat, and a morsel of yesterday's beef that had lodged between his teeth sent spasms through his system as it exuded a droplet of gravy upon his tongue. His ears were no less sensitive. His head was filled with a thousand dins, some of which he himself was father to. The air that broke against his eardrums was a hurricane. The flatulence in his bowels was thunder. But there were other sounds, innumerable sounds, which assailed him from somewhere beyond himself. Voices raised in anger, whispered professions of love, roars and rattlings, snatches of song, tears. Was it the world he was hearing? Morning breaking in a thousand rooms? He had no chance to listen closely. The cacophony drove any power of analysis from his head. But there was worse. The eyes. Oh God in heaven, he had never guessed that there could be such torment. He who'd thought there was nothing left on earth to startle him, now he reeled everywhere, sight. The plain plaster of the ceiling was an awesome geography of brushstrokes, the weave of his plaid shirt an unbearable elaboration of threads. In the corner he saw a dust mite move on a dead dove's head, and wink its eyes at him, seeing that he saw. Too much, too much. Appalled, he shut his eyes. There was more inside than out, memories whose violence shook him to the verge of senselessness. He suckled his mother's milk and choked, felt his siblings' arms round him, a fight, was it, or a brotherly embrace. Either way, it suffocated, and more, so much more. A short lifetime of sensations, all writ in a perfect hand upon his cortex, and breaking him with their insistence that they be remembered. He felt close to exploding. Surely the world outside his head, the room, the birds beyond the door, they, for all their shrieking excesses, could not be as overwhelming as his memories. Better that, he thought. He tried to open his eyes, but they wouldn't unglue. Tears or pus or needle and thread had sealed them up. He thought of the faces of the Cenobites, the hooks, the chains. Had they worked some similar surgery upon him, locking him up behind his eyes with the parade of his history? In fear for his sanity, he began to address them, though he was no longer certain they were even within earshot. Why, he asked, why are you doing this to me? The echo of his words roared in his ears, but he scarcely attended to it. More sense impressions were swimming upon him from the past to torment him. Childhood still lingered in his tongue, milk and frustration, but there were adult feelings joining it now. He was grown. He was mustached and mighty, hands heavy, gut large. Youthful pleasures had possessed the appeal of newness, but as the years crept on, the mild sensation lost its potency. Stronger and stronger experiences had been called for, and here they came again, more pungent for being laid in the darkness at the back of his head. He felt untold tastes upon his tongue, bitter, sweet, sour, salty, smelled spice and shit and his mother's hair, saw cities and skies, saw speed, saw deeps, broke bread with men now dead, and was scalded by the heat of their spittle on his cheek. And of course there were women. 
Always, amid the fury of confusion, memories of women appeared, assaulting him with their senses, their textures, their tastes. The proximity of his harem aroused him. Despite the circumstances, he opened his trousers and caressed his cock, more eager to have the seat spilled and so be freed from these creatures than for the pleasure of it. He was dimly aware, as he worked his inches, that he must make a pitiful sight, a blind man in an empty room, aroused for a dream's sake, but the racking, joyless orgasm failed to even slow the relentless display. His knees buckled and his body collapsed to the boards where his spunk had fallen. There was a spasm of pain as he hit the floor, but the response was washed away before another wave of memories. He rolled onto his back and screamed, screamed and begged for it to end, but the sensations only rose still, whipped to fresh heights with every prayer of secession he offered up. His pleas became a single sound, words and scents eclipsed by panic. It seemed there was no end to this but madness, no hope but to be lost to hope. As he formulated this last despairing thought, the torment stopped, all at once, all of it, gone. Sight, sound, touch, taste, smell. He was abruptly bereft of all of them. There were seconds then when he doubted his very existence. Two heartbeats, three, four. On the fifth beat, he opened his eyes. The room was empty. The doves in the piss pot gone. The door was closed. Gingerly, he sat up. His limbs were tingling, his head, wrist, and bladder ached, and then a movement at the other end of the room drew his attention. Where, two moments before, there had been an empty space, there was now a figure. It was the fourth Cenobite, the one that had never spoken nor shown its face. Not a he, he now saw, but she. The hood it had worn had been discarded as it had the robes. The woman beneath was gray yet gleaming. Her lips bloody, her legs parted so that the elaborate scarification of her pubis was displayed. She sat on a pile of rotting human heads and smiled in welcome. The collision of sensuality and death appalled him. Could he have any doubt that she had personally dispatched these victims? Their rot was beneath her nails and their tongues, twenty or more, laid out in ranks on her oiled thighs as if awaiting entrance. Nor did he doubt that the brains now seeping from their ears and nostrils had been driven to insanity before a blow or a kiss had stopped their hearts. Kersher had lied to him, either that or he had been horribly deceived. There was no pleasure in the air, or at least not as humankind understood it. He had made the mistake of opening Le Marchand's box, a very terrible mistake. Oh, so you've been streaming said the Cenobite, pursuing him as he lay panting on the bare boards. Good. She stood up, the tongues fell to the floor like a rain of slugs. Now I can begin, she said.